These are the obligations of the covenant. Some of this we read last week. Um, says the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Pray with me. Um, God, always coming to you, um, your word is preeminent. Your word is authoritative. Uh, and I just just admit right now that, that I can do nothing to bring your spirit into this space. It is only what you will to do with these people as we are connected. God, but I pray that, um, that in my abilities, that I may bring clarity, um, that I may trust in you in all things, and that we might um, find life through the words of Scripture tonight, that I might be able to share with us things that can um, help us to experience the presence you already have with us that much better. Um, that might give us wisdom, practical wisdom, spiritual insight that would change us slowly in the transformation that we are living through on this earth. That way we become um, companions to you doing your work, followers of your way in the city of Portland. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, <clears throat> oaths. Three weeks on oaths. Today I want to give clarity to this oath that the people are taking. The people are taking this specific oath today. They are saying, we are married to one God. We are married to one God. And the way that they're saying it is they're saying, verse 30, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. We are not going to allow our people to marry into the people of the land. Well, what does that mean? These, these are the sons and daughters, the tribes and families that are connected to all of the enemies we talked about earlier. Remember Sambalot and Tobiah, these surrounding countries, Edomites, um, Ammonites, all these people that are around. And all of these people do have a vested interest in seeing Jerusalem go down. They do not want it rebuilt. They do not want the people to renewed. They do not want God to be in charge. And after taking this oath to take on the entirety of God's law, they then draw out a specific instance. And we'll see over the next few weeks, they draw out three specific things. They say, yes, we recommit to an oath to follow one God. And this, these are the three specific things that are on our heart, which we can totally relate to, right? As we, as we come in confession or prayer, as we come in praise, we come uh, sometimes with generalities, but often with very specific things, things that are on our heart. And the people are coming and they're saying, we are re-entering this covenant. And you know, there's three things that we have really messed up that we need to bring attention to. And not just bring attention to, but that we need to meditate on and pursue change, practical 
actual life change around that we are going to recommit and in that recommitting things will actually change for our life it's it's not just an intellectual recommitment or a spiritual mystical recommitment it also means there is a practical outcome there there is a practical change so i want to i want to first dive into this there is a wrong way that you can interpret this. A quick interpretation of this, you might say, well, this just lends towards my already simmering Old Testament um, fear of a racist God who wants the people of Israel as an ethnicity. He's chosen them. He wants them, their bloodline, and he, he has hatred for certain ethnicities. That's just simply not the case. If you look at if you look at Nehemiah and you pair it with Ezra, which is sort of its sequel book, it's prequel, so to speak, um, these two books write in tandem. Really, if I had the time, we should preach all the way through Ezra and then all the way through Nehemiah. They they touch on a lot of the same themes, and and what we'll see as we talk today is that Ezra goes into this that there is a specific calling out to say end the intermarriages because God did not want you to marry out into the peoples of the land because they don't believe in God. It's a spiritual reason. And, and we know this because there are people from those other, other people groups, like the Moabites, who were converted. Think about Ruth, who I preached about this fall, right? We went through the series of Ruth. What was unique about Ruth? She was a Moabite. So she was from outside a people group of Israel. She, she was not part of the Israelites. She was part of the Moabites. They worshipped pagan gods, right? And yet Ruth repented and began to follow the one true God. And she was welcomed in. She was married in. She's part of the line of David. So clearly God does not have it out for specific people groups just because of their flesh and blood. There is a spiritual reason. And we know in the New Covenant, if you just take John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him. So first of all, he loved the world. And second, whosoever should believe in him. So the opening of the Gentiles was remarkable in the New Testament. But the reality is there's been an open door in the Old Testament to come into the covenant people of God through marriage, through profession of belief. And you even go a little further. You look at Hebrews 11 talks about by faith, right? By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies. Joshua, remember, sent in the spies to check out Canaan, right? And Rahab welcomed them in. Because of that, she was not killed with those who were disobedient. So there's just this general sense we see God's mercy and we see this distinction is not, do not be a peer, we're not talking like World War II Nazi purity here, you know, um, we're not like an Aryan race. We're talking a spiritually pure people, a people who all worship the one true God. So that is, that is the premise. So if we're going to, if we're going to zero in on the theme today, the theme is, about intermarriage with idolaters, or put maybe in much more 21st century language for us in Portland, saying, how is this relevant to me? I'm not dealing with intermarriage right now. We're dealing with split loyalties between God and man. Split loyalties is what we're talking about. Marrying one God means you're married to one God, just like you're married to one wife or husband, or, or even dating one person and not dating a bunch of people at one time, right? If you're going steady, like there's this sense of a loyalty. And so what we're talking about is 
the people of Israel have a split loyalty between God and man, and it's shown itself through these intermarriages. Let's look at Ezra. So in Ezra 9, when we look 13 years or so earlier, the temple has been rebuilt with the walls still in ruins. Nehemiah is not in the city yet. And Ezra has come back first, right? He sort of has declared this outpost and they've rebuilt the basic bones of it. And Ezra also goes through a revival of bringing the people back to, to a sense of holiness, and he says, the whole, it's written in 9 verse 2. For they had taken some of the daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race had mixed itself with the people of the lands. So there's a distinction there, holy race. It's a spiritual concern here, not a racial concern. This is not a mixed ethnicity concern. This is a spiritual concern. A holy race has mixed itself with the people of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hands of the officials and chief men as before. So some of their leaders were foremost in this problem. This was just not a, a problem of not knowing they shouldn't do it or lack of education. This was even at the highest levels. There was what Ezra writes is a faithlessness out of this decision. A faithlessness in having a split loyalty between God and man. We'll dive into that more in a second. Because... And then all who trembled at the words of God is because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled. This is Ezra speaking. I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And then it goes on showing that God had commanded them not to intermarry for spiritual reasons. So in verse 13, it continues. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved. So in short, God has been merciful already to them and have given us such a remnant as this, this little outpost. Shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the people who practice these abominations, meaning the spiritual things that they are doing that are directed towards idols, towards pagan gods, gods of fertility, all of these gods besides the one true God. And even here in Ezra, they say, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of the Lord and all those who tremble at the commandment of God and let it be done according to the law. So, so 13 years before, there's already been a pledge to remove this split loyalty. And here we are later, recommitted, cut to the heart, recommitting to God, and still there's a scourge on these people of a split loyalty, and not just a split loyalty, a conflict of the heart, but an actual real-life sense of commitments that they are obligated to people outside of the one true God, that worship another God. They're obligating themselves them through marriage, and they're, they're putting themselves... Uh, it, it, for instance, if a wife at that time had married a husband out of that, she's putting him herself totally, especially at this time, completely at the whim of his religious sensibilities, right? And, and even if you look at a, a son marrying a daughter outside, think about every, everyone who's married, think about it. You're constantly trying to find a balance, right? You're trying to find some compromise, some sense of how do we raise our kids? So there is a split loyalty that is tearing the people apart. And, and it's not something they can just balance and weigh and figure out and find some sense of compromise to. It's actually a problem that must have an end to it because there are people who have a faithlessness by having a split loyalty. So there's no both and in this situation. The original law puts it this way. It says, Exodus 34, 12 through 16, verse 12 says, Be careful 
not to make a treaty with those who live in the land where you are going, or they will be a snare among you. It's interesting that word treaty, the Hebrew word for that word treaty, is the same word for covenant promise. So the same word that God makes with Abraham, that Moses, God has made with Moses and the people, this covenant promise that we've talked about. The word treaty, same word. He said, be careful not to make a covenant promise. So here's the very real reality. God married his people. He brought them into his family. He brought them in, right? That he made this treaty with them, a, co a covenant promise. And he says, now that I've made that with you and you are my people, when you go and do that outside, you are breaking, inherently you are breaking. If you make a treaty one direction, Right? Think of a war scenario, Europe, right? Like in World War I, World War II, you think of a war scenario, and a country has made a treaty, and then they go and make another treaty. It's a very likely chance that they are backstabbing somebody with their second treaty, right? Like they, they are making with two different people who have two different ends. If those people are enemies with each other, then those two treaties, they're probably backstabbing, right? There's, there's no sense of neutrality here. You can't just claim sort of a benign neutrality of saying, no, it's, it's fine. No, you've made a treaty, he said, and it will be a snare among you. So the first point I want to make today is that the first place I want to start us at and get us thinking is thinking about where we are at individually as a church, but specifically individually right now. Where are you? Where are you with God? Are you married to God and yet unmarried to God? Are, are you married to Him and yet you're unmarried because you're looking around, you're scouting around, you're wondering, you're dabbling. You've, you've committed to Him intellectually, you've made an oath, you've made a spiritual oath. But on a functional level, you're married, and yet there are times in which you claim to not be married to him. There are times in which you sort of put that, that marriage, that oath, and you lock it away, and you say, well, I can actually keep that a secret. So there's such a thing, I know because I lived in this space for so long, of covert Christianity. That on Sundays and with the people here, it's easy to be a Christian, it's easy to talk about God, it's easy to, to talk about that side of things, but you take about the very same issues in your life with somebody who's a non-Christian in your workplace, uh, in your friend group, and you just sort of sidestep all of those things. You don't attribute the things to God that you would normally attribute to God. You don't really talk about your faith. In fact, you may have people that you know that have literally no clue you're a Christian. And, and I felt it on my heart today because this did such a number on me, being convicted of this. That if you are living in a sense of covert Christianity, if, if you have controlled and choreographed relationship in such a way that you're, you're sort of embarrassed to be a Christian. You're sort of embarrassed to wave that flag. Uh, that oath is a private thing between you and God, and you don't want to really... There's no need to bring it out. You can still be, you can still act like Jesus. You don't have to really talk about Jesus. But it's not just that, that there may be times where that's what you should do. You should act like Jesus and not talk about Jesus. There may be times where that's right. But I'm saying, are you willfully worried about that with people? You've kept that secret. And now you've started to build a split loyalty. You're married to God. And yet there are times at which you take the ring off 
and you walk around without the ring on and then you put it back on, right? Are there times in your life where you're doing that? This is, this is the people that Nehemiah are talking to, people that, that, that have joined together uh, because they want Jerusalem to be rebuilt. It would probably be good for them, for Jerusalem, a center of commerce, an anchor point for their people and their bloodline, and yet they, their families are all intermarried out because they've been playing the, the angles for years. Not sure if God would show up, so we got to be ready for to take care of us. So there's a certain covertness, a certain uh, malcontentness, and they've put things aside. And come on, everybody knows that they're they're an Israelite. They've probably literally abdicated it and said, "Yeah, but whatever. Like, what's your thing? I'm totally on board." So these are a people that that are married and yet unmarried, and we. Even those here in church, even myself, have been at times so much this way, where I've said, I would just rather people not know. It's awkward. I don't want to talk about it. And, and, and something eats away at that. There's a sense at which you're taking the ring off in those situations. And so the question, the question for the Israelites was why, and the question for us is why, too. One reason the Israelites were doing it was to climb the social ladder. So uh, you think about um, medieval times, especially this was prominent, right? Uh, there were so many political marriages, right? It was all about the kings, the prince marrying the, the princess from this country to make an alliance. Everything was about creating a social atmosphere, a political atmosphere. And especially in ancient times, there's a sense that, that these intermarriages, these, they're creating deals, they're creating trust circles, they're creating commerce, they're creating status and bureaucracies, they're creating tribes and peoples that accumulate wealth. They're climbing the social ladder. And in those cases, they have said it's more important for us to climb the ladder, to, ha- to have things now the way we want them, to wait patiently for our God. Our God has left us. We are a cursed people. So now let's just survive and take it. There's, there's this maybe subtle or maybe not so subtle sense of malcontentment. Or, or maybe for us, it's not so much, it's not so much, I don't dislike Jesus per se. I just want to explore my options. I, I just want to explore what's available out there for me. It's not, it's not, Jesus isn't that bad of a guy. He has his usefulness and in his community, I sing his praises and I, and I love everything he's about. But when push comes to shove and I'm, I'm kind of pushed into a corner, I sit down and I go, yeah, but God hasn't been showing up for me. And this opportunity is right out here. And it would just take, it would just take one white lie. It would just take a small sin. To bring me to, to, to where Jesus wants me, to bring me where my family wants me. You see, there, there's this justification that starts to happen, but it starts with a subtle sense of malcontentment. It may simply just be a, a sense of loneliness or abandonment, or it may be outright hatred. It may be that, that if you think of it in marriage terms, it may be that Jesus or God has just become a bit of a nag on your life. He's a bit of he's a bit of a nag. He's always there, kind of reminding you and making you feel guilty and calling you to task to do hard things you don't want to do. And you know, if push came to shove, if your life wasn't built the way it was, you'd probably be better off without without this whole church thing. It's a lot of work. And here's what happens when that begins to develop. 
I guarantee you God is orchestrating your life a place where he's going to put a knife through that. And he's going to call you to task. He's going to say, are you in or are you out? He goes, no, you can't just take the ring off and on. In fact, I would wish that. I would wish that there would be a time in anyone's life who's struggling this way where Jesus calls that out. And he says, no, I'm not going to allow that for your good. I'm not going to allow that anymore. You see, it's not, this, this may be viewed in some ways as a horrible thing. Bad things are going to happen here. They're going to have to sever marriages. Things are going to, things look unjust and unfair and, and they're going to be rough on people. And Nehemiah is saying, no, now is better than later. Trust me. You've already gone this far down the road. Now is better than later. Paul talks about this um, in 2 Corinthians. So he, he talks about, should you be married, right? There's this discussion of how about marrying unbelievers? 2 Corinthians 14 begins this way. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? But he, he, leave it to Paul to, to boil it down to just the most raw, clear logic. He's going back to this treaty language. What treaty, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness. These two parties you're making treaties with have nothing in common. Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial, foreign God? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? And then he harks back to the original law. He goes on and he says, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, and then I will welcome you. So that's, that's, the, that's the promise right there in the covenant. Paul is referencing it. Nehemiah is rehearsing himself, living, improving himself right into that. He's saying that's the commandment. God will come back with us. If we touch no unclean thing, he's a merciful God. He will welcome us back. But Paul in the New Testament says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So I'll go, I'll go into this a little bit more later. If, if there is a marriage, maybe parents that we have, where, where uh, one is a Christian or faith and the other isn't, all is not lost here, you guys, but this is practical wisdom. Paul's saying practically, it's just wise to avoid the pain that this will likely cause and the stumbling block that it will likely present. And he, here's exactly why he says it. So in a, in a few weeks, we'll get to Nehemiah 13. We might dive into this a little bit more, but this directly relates. Nehemiah comes back. I'm just going to minor spoiler alert here. Nehemiah comes back. By the way, the end of Nehemiah is just crazy. So it truly is a spoiler alert. I'm just going to read this one line. In those days, he comes back and he says, I saw the Jews had married women of Ashdod. Big surprise. There's been some, some breaking of promises. I saw them. They had married the women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half the children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each of their people. So I don't know. If that doesn't say at all, what does? And in, when, when that kind of intermarriage starts to happen, right, when you start to make a treaty, as it's put in Nehemiah, or a promise, or however Paul puts it, a partnership, what happens when you start to have children? What happens when you try to live your life in that balance? Nehemiah 13 shows that practically what happens 
is that the powers of sin will be a snare and they will take over. Your faithlessness will meet a faithful conviction from the other side. The other side has passion and devotion and faith for whatever it's after. So your faithlessness is going to be subsumed by it. You are the weaker in your faithlessness. You are a weak vessel. And whoever comes in contact with you like a snare is going to pull you in. And what's going to happen is proverbially, metaphorically, and practically, Nehemiah 13 could come true that half the children spoke the languages and they couldn't even speak the language of God. They couldn't even speak the language of God's people. That's the power that this kind of tepid faithlessness is what Nehemiah calls it. And I I get it. That kind of tepidness with our faith bears no fruit. When we aren't willing to take risks and and trust in God and do things and, and at least be able to, on a most basic level, identify with him. We won't see the fruits that come out of that. Because we weren't willing to have the courage to live in faith to declare aside. This is so easy. And so I sound maybe kind of hard on everyone right now. And I'm not trying to sound that way. It is so easy in Portland to just play the field and be whoever you want to be in any circle. It's such a postmodern, you know, 21st century ideal, which is just the individual, the individual, the individual. And there's something about even staking your claim as a Christian that that feels so hostile and so vulnerable. But it's a form of faithlessness. It shows that we have no conviction of spine. And what will happen is that the forces of sin, the forces of the people of the land, the forces of the flesh, as Paul calls them, people without God will rapidly and decisively move in to pull you into their camp. Rapidly, decisively, subtly, insidiously, maybe without their even realizing it. Simply because the force of their cultural nature, their habits, their rituals are so entrenched in their own life. Think of it. A family that grew up worshiping a foreign god might not even have it out for Yahweh, but they're certainly not giving up their family's God and their family's culture and their family's rituals. That's just part of their life. And so this is why Paul is coming down hard on this. That's why Nehemiah is coming down. That intermarriage, he knows that intermarriage often stems from this thought. Why can't I? What if? If only I had. And the liking leads to linking, leads to becoming. Think about every marriage, about an, uh, every movie about an unhappy marriage where the wife or the husband is introduced to a passionate and self-assured man or woman, Right? There's a point in that story when they begin to play both sides, when they take the ring off, where they are called to make a decision. Because now they have been dishonest to two parties. And neither of them are going to live with it. And both of them are actually going to call them to make a decision. We've seen, this is, just like, this is tr- tried and true part of our identity story. We see this in movie after movie, that there is always going to be a call to what is your true self. And the convictionless limp soul, will be finally called out to have conviction one way or the other. So convicted of this today that, that sin is crouching, as Genesis 4 said, I've brought this up multiple times with us thinking about the enemy and how sin works. Sin is crouching at the door and its urge is for you. But there's a, but there's a catch. But you can rule over it. God says this, right? You can rule over it. 
says this right to Cain, who has just broken, like, just murdered his brother. But you can rule over it. So there, there is a conviction of faith that's necessary. But it does require a sense that we, we need to rule. We need to have a sense of, of rule. We need to have a sense of leadership. Because, look, nobody wants to be ruled. So sin, sin and the people of the earth and flesh, those who do not like Christians, when, when you have a sense of rule, and I'm not talking about judging and uh, being condemning and being un-Jesus-like to, that, to them. I'm saying when you have a sense of rule over your life where you won't budge because you have conviction, they will not like it because sin does not like to be ruled. Because there will be a point at which your Christianity will infringe on their individualism. They're just guarantee you there will be a point. Because God drives that knife and you will be an agent to take that knife and separate and cut people towards God. To bring them. Your witness is going to call other people to task. And sin does not like that. It will fight that. So that's what we're signing up for. We are not signing up for, for a road that, that will never, that we can just kind of split our legs. I've talked about this before, down two roads, right? They, they don't converge. They're not coming back. You're going to rip yourself in half. And so Nehemiah is saying, we can't keep doing this. You know, I remember as a kid, this was a really prevalent thought for me growing up in a very heavy Christian subculture. Um, I always had this little bit of solace. I had a lot of baggage with church with the religious types. And I had this little bit of solace for being able to double dip. I said, well, I can live my life and I've read my Bible enough. I think I can live my life. And as I'm dying, I can ask for forgiveness and repent and I'll go to heaven so I can have the best of both worlds. I've literally thought that thought that, that I could just, I could have it all right. No, you can't. That is a dangerous game to play. And God, in that kind of repentance, I fully believe, in that kind of repentance, God's going to go, really? You think, you think I'm going to do that? I see what's going on here. The heart is not in the right place. Now, am I saying that no one can repent at their own life? No, there is a heart that is truly repentant, but not that kind of heart. Not a heart that says, I just gamed you, God. That's not, that's not how God works, and he can see through that. So, are we married and yet unmarried? So the question then comes to, why do we, why do, we do this? Maybe some of you can identify with me right now on some of these personal stories of thinking these thoughts. Why do we do this? Well, again, Paul and his just sort of like very clear logic in Romans 8 is this tour de force over this. It says, the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Nor can it do so. Right? It takes the Holy Spirit to come into that. The flesh cannot submit to it. Uh, ESV, a different translation, because this is a hard text. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Or Peterson with the message, right? Just paraphrasing it and bringing it home for us. Focusing on the self, he says, is the opposite of focusing on God. Anyone completely absorbed in self ignores God, ends up thinking more about self than God. That person ignores who God is and what he is doing, and God isn't pleased at being ignored. I love Peterson. He just has a way of doing it. He says... That's what it is. There's no neutral ground. There's no neutral ground. 
God is either authority over your life or your authority over your life. So what was the direction of Israel's faithlessness, if that's faithfulness, if that can help us? What were they faithful to in that they were unfaithful to God? Let me say that again. What things in which they were convicted, passionate, spending time, money, energy, worry, thought, their anxieties, what was it about? Well, we probably social climbing, probably a certain sense of survival in their own right, taking control over their own life which isn't, again, bad out of itself, except they're abdicating God's commands. They're, they're sinning to do it, right? So what was the direction of Israel's faithfulness? Many different directions. It was complex. It's not just one thing. But what they all had in common is that they were, they were outside of God. There was all of these things outside of God. And he said, he said, no, you have one direction for your faithfulness. And for him at this time with this commandments, the Mosaic law, it's to keep my commandments and my statutes. That's your one faithfulness. That's what you signed up for. That's what you said you would do. So you've heard me toss this name around, James K.A. Smith. I love this guy. He wrote this book, You Are What You Love, which was a distillation of his book, Desiring the Kingdom, which is like a tome. But in, in You Are What You Love, he talks about um, this idea that we may intellectually believe that we love certain things. So if I ask you, well, you're a Christian, do you love Jesus? Of course I love Jesus. I love Jesus, right? Uh, we, we intellectually have an idea of what we love, but it doesn't always, unfortunately, match up with what we're actually doing. He says, while we desire to shape culture, we are not often aware of how culture shapes us. We might not realize the way our hearts are being taught to love rival gods instead of the one for whom we are made. So what is our faithfulness to? What do we love? Put this another way. What do you desire? What do you hunger for? What are your deepest cravings for? What are your deepest cravings that are for something ultimate that really defines you? For some of us, that's, a, that's an identity. It's, it's being known as a certain person. Well, he's a dentist, he's an engineer, he's a CEO. That's, 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 what we're, that's our deepest craving when we're really honest at our soul gut level. Or our deepest hungers are, are to be loved by our parents like our, like our brother is or our sister is, to live up. Or, or our deepest desires is just to be a great mom or dad. We, just, that's, we want that so bad. Or, or, or our desires are just that, that people would always love us. Somewhere we have a deep craving and we gear so much of our life around it and culture has brought us into that and carried us into that. And he says, what's, what's more unsettling is that you might not love what you think you love. Your desires and loves and aims aren't determined necessarily by what you know, or what your intellect discovers, but they are trained and shaped and oriented and directed by what he calls rituals, rhythms and practices that you've been immersed in, the way that you spend your time. And he says you are learning to love in all kinds of unconscious ways. So if love is an active way that you use your life, he says step back and look, is what you profess to love, is what you know truthfully you should love, and actually what you have even at times and maybe frequently say that you do love. Is it lining up with your day-to-day -day hungers and cravings and desires, the deepest things 
the things that you want to ultimately define you. And I would, I would take it here, if Jesus is unincorporated into that, then in some ways you're married and unmarried. I think there's a real tendency for us, especially those who grew up in the church, to just get really used to living sort of a, a weirdly double life mentally. Sometimes it's actually bad. Like, like you are dabbling in things you shouldn't be. You are sinning and then pretending you're righteous. But other times, I would just say you just haven't challenged and incorporated your life fully. You've said on an intellectual level, church is where Jesus is. And when I read the Bible, I'm doing Jesus stuff. And when I come to small group cohort, when I come to that on, on Tuesday, that's Jesus-y. So I'm doing, I'm doing all these nice Christian things. And I think I'm doing enough of them, like, to go on the ride, right? Like, you have to be tall enough to go on the ride. It's like, I'm doing enough stuff to get on the ride. So I think that's good enough, and I think we can call it, and then I can do all the rest of my stuff. Well, look, I'm not saying that all the rest of your stuff is bad stuff. I'm just saying, that's a really, that's not the way Jesus said to look at your life. But yet, we're so often taught to see religion and our faith as this sort of, like, time slot piece of our week, and not a total sense of our life. Jesus hasn't been incorporated. Like when you when you make dough, right? You push everything together and you knead it. You incorporate it all together so it's all throughout everything. Jesus needs to be incorporated in some of our lives. For some of us, it's not so much that we're worshiping two different gods or that we're facilitating all these horrible intermarriages. It's that we haven't really had the curiosity to ask ourselves, is this thing I'm doing right now an intermarriage? Is this thing I'm doing right now sinful? Is this thing I'm doing splitting my legs apart so that eventually I'm going to have to make a decision or I'm going to fall through the cracks, right? We're not curious enough, and maybe we're not faithful enough, and maybe we don't see God big enough and present enough to realize God was present in every single moment of today and every single moment of your week and every single moment of your whole life. Did you see him? Because he was there in every single thing. Not just he was there sometimes when nice things happen. He was there when you didn't get in a car wreck. He was there when your friend or your parent didn't die of a disease. That Then he showed up. No, that's not how he works. He's always there. God's always there. And it's a lack of our own curiosity to ask how. So that we can challenge and actually call to task and say, do, have I just abided by some sense of moralism or legalism to get where I'm at? And, and I'm just content with it because everybody else I talk to agrees with me that I'm righteous enough, so we're good? Because you can easily do that in churches very easily. You can talk about the right things, and you can show the right side, and you can even challenge and confess the right things in such a way that you're like bulletproof. And you can so misunderstand that it's your whole life, that God is blessing and with you in your whole life, that he is the reason for your whole life, that everything you read and watch, there is some part of God's beauty at the core and at the root of those things, even in the way that it is divorced from them, even in the way that that thing might be the curse of the oath, even in the way that some horrible sordid piece of a, a novel or a show that just literally has no redeeming value. At least you can say, in contrast to God, I can see that for what it is. God is even present there, right? 
as much as he's present in the good things. So I think for us, uh, listening to and looking at this, this section of Nehemiah, we have to ask, okay, are, are there intermarriages? Have I looked closely enough? And, and are these things things that need correcting? Or, or do I just have no sense for what's really going on in my life and I haven't really thought about it? Because here's the one true thing we know that what, what Paul says, he says, he says, sin is like a river current, right? You're in the river all the time. So if you aren't working your faith, if you aren't ruling it, if you aren't swimming against the current to get to the rock, to, to stay above it, if you aren't actively doing that, it's taking you downstream. So if you're not paying attention to what the world's doing to you, the world is having its way with you. But guarantee you. Because you're simply not ruling over it. And so Nehemiah is challenging them to cut ties. He says, there are times when you have to cut ties. And yes, there will be, there will be a wake of sin that is left from that sometimes. But, but you must remember, uh, I think about these women and children that would be kind of left out in the cold, so to speak, in this moment. And that, that hurts. Like, to me, I, I have a heart that says, well, there must surely be some restoration for this. But you must remember, this is not God's intention. His intention was for that to never happen in the first place. Now, of course, we don't know what happened to any of those people. We don't know Nehemiah. They put them under Nehemiah's obligation, it turns out, or under Ezra's obligation earlier. It says specifically, we give them to you to make distinctions. Maybe he as a ruler found ways for God's mercy to be played out in their lives. But we know this, that God never intended it to get to that point. They were already in disobedience. Sin and brokenness was already having its way with the world. In the New Testament, Paul in Corinthians addresses this. In, in the same, right after this passage where he's talking about marriage, he says, If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. By the way, this is not like a more male or more female thing. He's just saying that... If you marry an unbeliever, guess what? You're carrying a different kind of cross. You have a different mission in your life. Don't get divorced. You don't have any right to get divorced. Your life is a mission field. Your life is living out your faith. It wasn't the practical wisdom I gave, Paul speaking. He didn't give that practical wisdom. He says, but if you're there, let Christ work abundantly. Let you be holy to them. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. He says, rule over it. Make sure the children learn about Jesus. Like, he, he's redeeming that in such a powerful way. So, to, to get us kind of where we should go with all of this. Maybe you're saying, okay, John, yeah, you've convicted me. I didn't think there were inter intermarriages. I didn't think there were things. I thought I had done this well. But actually, I've just kind of been status quo. I fit into the culture. I've crossed the T's and dotted the I's. And everyone else around me says, you're doing fine. I need to be more curious. What does that look like? What is Nehemiah, what is God hoping for? Let's be honest, what is God hoping for here? Of course he's hoping for the people to come back to him, to end those marriages, to pursue him. But God never wants a legalistic, guilt-ridden, um, just miserable pursuit of him. Are there times going to be hard? Yes. But the pursuit of him, using the same marriage oath idea, that we are married to one God, He's looking for a marriage pursuit. He's looking for a, just a pursuit of him 
as a wife would pursue their husband or a husband would pursue their wife. And I would propose this, that those of us who are struggling with dead faith, with just depressed faith, with just a sense of emptiness, of just we're, we're dead in the water. In the weekly this week, I, I used the rhyme of the ancient mariner. It's like a painted ship on a painted ocean, I think is the line, right? That everything's just like stuck forever. That's what it feels like right now a little bit. It's easy to have a dead faith right now to just be like, well, I think I'm doing everything I can do. Nothing's moving. And it feels like God's nowhere. And I've deadened my faith. That is like a death of a marriage. And a death of a marriage so often comes from a lack of creativity and a lack of curiosity. Megan and I had our 11th anniversary um, on Friday. And it was such a good anniversary. And I'll be honest, I don't think either of us expected it to be a wonderful anniversary. We had had a really hard week. Really hard week. And I think both of us were like, really, God, you're going to give us our anniversary like this week? Like, there are a lot of other better weeks you could have done it. But I'll tell you this. My wife is much more creative than I am. And she just brought out just certain ways of being curious about who I was, being creative. Saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to propose this idea. I want to know this. I want to take us into this space. I want to do this with you, right? And that just, like, that kind of spark created a sense of adventure. So my my proposal is that many of us have a dead faith because we are not, we have not stepped up to God and Jesus and we have not said to to the Holy Trinity, the Holy Spirit, we have not said, um, actually, I'm really curious about this. I want to know. Um, I'm going to go out and garden and be with you. How are you with me when I garden? We're not asking creative questions. We're not curious people with God. Our, our, our faith has become so stale because we've decided either because we've been taught it looks a certain way, that that's just how it is. And I, w- I would say that actually the tool that I'm using right now of preaching is not the best tool for this. The best tool would be for me to just hang out with you for a day, for you to hang out with God for a day, you hang out in the company of other Christians for a day and just see how you experience God together. Because right now I am in some ways giving you a prescription of the gospel. A prescription is not inspiration necessarily, right? It's, it's a here's how it is. Here's maybe what you should do. The inspiration comes from within you when the spark is lit and you say, oh, I'm really curious now. John said something that made me really curious. I got to go read about it. I got to go talk about it. Um, man, I didn't realize it, but when I woke up this morning and I heard birds chirping in my backyard, I just felt at peace. And I wonder if God was in that. Wow, I've never thought about God being in that experience. Uh, when my in, when my child just showed their innocence, walking around naked in the backyard, like there's the Garden of Eden, right? Like, I saw God there, because that's what true innocence looks like. Like, to have that creativity, to let that inspire us, to let that coach us, to encourage us, to adventure into the gospel, to say there is a good news and God has proclaimed a kingdom and he's king over it, and he lets me adventure through it. He lets me wander through the like royal woods and figure out what's going on because it's his space and there's such freedom in that. And so many of us just lack curiosity and we lack creativity and we have such sameness with our faith, such rhythm, such parts we play in it, such things we talk about, right and wrong things, and we dodge and avoid and move through those spaces, never taking risks. 
what Nehemiah is saying, as hard as it is, is he says, guys, it's time to freshen it up. It's time to, fr- we're going to change things and it's going to look different. We're going to freshen it up. No new intermarriages, guys. No, no, no new dabbling and playing with things that are just going to end in death. Come to the freedom of life and live in it and find joy in it. James Smith puts it this way again. He says, create, he says, collective worship is a place where he says, collective worship, he describes it as an imagination station. I love this. He says, there is formative power of culture and the transformative possibilities of Christian practices. Worship should be the imagination station that incubates our lives and longings so that our cultural endeavors are indexed towards God. Now, it's heavy language. Indexed towards God. When something's indexed, it means that it's gone through and figured out in such a way so that everything is recallable, right? You can recall to any point that's indexed. He says, so that all of our cultural index are reoriented like a compass towards God. So that in everything I can say, I remember that and I see God in that. I remember my life and I can journal about my life and I can see God in my life. I, I do my day for God, and here's how, and here's why I do these things. And I've thought through the liturgies of my day, the practices, the things I do. And I've thought through them, and I've let go the ones that have no goodness in them. And I've reclaimed all of the things that aren't labeled in my life as godly things, and I've labeled them as godly. There are so many poets and musicians that are not Christian poets or musicians. There are so many painters and artists. There are so many incredible craftsmen and gardeners and cooks. There are so many scholars that are not Christians that still have found unquestionable goodness. And you can claim that and you can say that points to God. I have this game I play with movies that I've told you guys about before that every movie I just end up thinking, wow, I see the gospel in that story. The director didn't see the gospel in that story, but he felt it. He felt the gravity of it. And I can sit there and I can name it. And I can say that, that's good. That's good, I like that. That helps me understand God better. Jesus says when, when, you, when you make this cutting, when you cut these intermarriages out, when you profess faith and you take a marriage to God, which is baptism and oath, right? When you profess faith in God, you're born again. He tells this to to Nicodemus, a Pharisee. And guess what happens when you're born again? You start over as a baby. Some of us, I think, expected to be born again and start over like with a job. And we like knew how to do it. And we just figured it would all work out. And so we like quick read the cliff notes so everyone else felt like we were doing the job. And, And I'll be honest, like nobody expected that. Maybe you skipped the whole baby phase and you've just been pretending how to do the job. And, and Jesus is not so good to start over as a baby. He's telling Nicodemus, like the head, like the, the top-notch Pharisee knows everything. He's saying it's so good to start over as a baby. Because faith is, faith is a little bit of work. Faith takes gumption and time and thought. There isn't salvation by works, but faith in and of itself is a work, it's a rule over sin, right? It's, it's, a, it's a saying, I profess to do this. I live in the kingdom. The king has made it happen. Jesus has suffered for us. He's ruled over our sin. He's the king. He's the ruler. He's the victor. He conquered death. 
But in this time, in the not yet, when, when, when the new earth has not come and he has not redeemed everything into that perfection, when we're in this in-between space where we're blessed with his presence, but we're asked to live in faith, there is an element there that, that James, the apostle, would call work. He would say, he would say, no, this is, this is work too. We do it. We live it out. There's a tension there. And it calls us to count the cost. Jesus calls it counting the cost. He says, when you do this, treat it like a builder. And when you build a tower, estimate the cost and make sure you have enough to complete it. Basically, commit to it and have the faithfulness to it and commit to doing things like saying, if it's stale, I'm going to be creative. In a marriage, you commit to it. And when it grows stale, as a, as a leader in that marriage, both the husband and the wife are leading each other. And they're saying, when it gets that way, I'm going to jumpstart this thing because it's so good. I'm going to have faith that it is so good. And I'm not just going to be content with it feeling dark and depressing and always sobering all the time. Sometimes when I preach, maybe you feel like it's sobering so much of the time and that can be good. But what I'm calling us to is I'm saying, no, no, there's joy. There's, there's so much adventure to it. And in that cutting ties, we're charting a new path. And in that new path, we're jumping into culture. And this is kind of the last big thing I want to talk about. We're jumping into culture. There's a, there's a popular book in Christian circles right now called The Benedict Option. And you can have your thoughts on this book. Uh, there's probably great points made in it. There's a premise of the book. The premise is on the Benedictine monks, right? That they removed themselves. That there's a monastic way. That in America right now, with where America's going, with how... How many things are at odds with Christian culture that we should just remove ourselves and create a subculture? Homeschool, our own businesses, our own complete sort of insulated economies, and just completely remove it like a monastic living to get through it, to live through the end times. It's one approach. And then the other approach is Jesus says, I'm going to send people to the ends of the earth. I'm going to send people out into everything. Paul gets sent out to Mars Hill. He goes up and proclaims Jesus on a hill where all of the pagan gods are. He just jumps right into it. I think the tendency, uh, there can be goodness in a monastic style. There can be a goodness in some of that. But I think the tendency is to remove and say, no, no, church is the good thing. Church is where God is. Monastic living, I can just be surrounded by God all the time and therefore I'll be good. And that is the Pharisee's heir. That is the heir. The Nicodemus makes that says, no, I can, I can create a lifestyle and a structure and a comfort and a world in which I don't have to think as much, where all the rules are laid out for me. And I just don't believe that's what Jesus has to live. We're people in Portland and he's put us here and he said, don't go put yourself off into a little monastery in a little safe space with a little community and never step outside of it and let it program the way you, the way you think about God and the way you identify and the way you index things. As Jamie Smith would say, is the way you do that. Don't, don't do that. He says, you're sent out to redeem, to, to, to bring, to reclaim that which God has claimed, to label that which Jesus has redeemed. You, we are sent out, I'll put it this way. We are sent out to apply our spirituality. And that may mean for some of us, we have to come out of the religious like the older prodigal son, we have to come out of the know-it-all and having every answer back into a place of humility. For others of us, that may mean that we have to become—we have to be pulled out of all of these these other kinds of intermarriages. They're both intermarriages. Nicodemus had intermarriages to to the religious world, 
of power and faith that was against Jesus, to the rules and structures and all of those things that gave him a sense of status and justice. He had to be pulled out of those intermarriages. The younger prodigal had to be pulled out of all of the, the intermarriages with just sinful culture and, and horrible things that, that have no respect and status. One of them, totally respectful, still had to be pulled out of it to be with Jesus. Right? Like the rich young ruler. Totally respectable. Still had to be pulled out to be with Jesus. At the same time you have a tax collector like Zacchaeus. Totally disrespectful. Had to be pulled out of it to be with Jesus. Jesus presents a third way. And if we apply our spirituality, we will be constantly challenging and finding a third way. Even among our communities here, we'll be asking, what is the Jesus way? I get that, but that seems like a church thing. John, what's the Jesus way? Challenge me to that. I, I get that. But I get that in Portland culture. I get that, that, that marijuana is legal. But let's talk about the Jesus way. Does it affect that? Is legal enough? Or do I need to challenge that? Is it good or bad? Let's give it critical thought. Let's not be so quick to label it with either what the monastic movement would say or the conservative right would say or with what the progressive left would say. Let's, let's go to the Bible and what Jesus says and let's apply our spirituality. Let's do some critical thinking. And there's one way in which we can really work on this, and I think it's a slowness. This is the last thing I'm going to say. It's a slowness. It's just taking things a little slower. Not having to have all the answers. Listening more closely. Moving a little more like water, right? Just flowing through it and listening and, and saying, okay, okay. Man, I'm convicted of that. I'm going to hold on to that conviction, so much of the time we have a tendency to be convicted and then we just like jump out and it's on to the next thread, right? No sooner am I out of feeling convicted than I'm back into everything else. Hold it. Hold the conviction. Hold this above everything else that Christ died for our freedom from sin. He died. He went to the cross. He loved us so much and he suffered everything that you would have to suffer to bring us this freedom. Apart from the law, he ended, the curtain was torn on the temple. He said, that's over. That was a crutch. Faith in me. Look at my life. I have pulled you out of sin. I freed you from the thing that would trap you permanently, eternally. You are totally free. But it's, but it's just a different kind of freedom. It's a freedom within truth. It's a freedom within goodness and rightness. It's the best kind of freedom that he brings to us. Jesus is interested in you and he's waiting for you to share his curiosity. Let's pray.